I want you to imagine for a moment that uh, tomorrow when you go into work or you go into the organization where you volunteer or you go to see your doctor, that you find out that the person who has been in charge, your doctor, your boss, your supervisor, is retiring. And that the person that is going to replace him or her is a 22-year-old that's right out of college. You're probably going to have some questions and concerns. It's probably going to be a little rocky. Well, that's exactly what happened here at Faith Church. In 2005, the 73-year-old founding pastor, Robert Helms, stepped down from the lead pastor role, and Faith Church hired a 22-year-old fresh out of Bible college named Daniel Edwards, me. And when I tell people that I have been the pastor here for 15 years, that I came to be pastor uh, right out of college, and that I followed the founding pastor, who was 73 and I was 22, that there was more than 50 years difference between us in age. People always ask, how did that work out? How is it that you're still there? Because it's not normal in just about any setting, but especially in church settings, for that to work out. And I just want to say right now that it's not because, man, I was just such a, a talented leader at the age of 22 or had it all figured out. No. The people who welcomed me to be their pastor were incredibly gracious. And I think that the reason that they were so gracious and so resilient in those troubling times is because of the difficulties that they had gone through in the years before. You see, three years before I showed up, before our founding pastor stepped down, Faith Church was going through an incredibly exciting time. In 2001, 2002, the Christian school that Faith Church had was at its, at its peak. It had the most students that it ever had. The school was growing. They were talking about making additions. The church was growing. They were looking at putting together building plans, and then they went through adversity. Last year, we interviewed Carrie and Tammy for Anniversary Sunday, and they had this to say about so the school was going very, very well then. The church was growing. We were talking about, um, you know, getting a, uh, making additions, looking at property. It was an exciting time. And then we went through a rough patch and uh, had several people leave, and that was very disheartening. Uh, Christian people will disappoint you and because we're all human, uh, and I'm sure I've disappointed many people as well. But uh, we stayed... We started to build back up again, so it wasn't the end of it. So there was a season where if people were looking for a reason to leave, they had one. It was a difficult time. I wasn't here for that season. I wasn't here for that time. But after going through what we've gone through over the past year, I think that more than ever, I can imagine what it must have been like. It must have been crushing. It must have been a brutal season. Because this has been a season where we have said farewell to people who were just attenders, and we've also said farewell to people who were serving and leading here at our church. It's a time that people that we've just been getting to know have faded off, and a time when close friends have walked away and stopped supporting the church. It's been difficult. Back in 2005, when I became the pastor here, people would often refer to that that rough season in 2002, they would refer to it as the Exodus. And that was kind of how we marked time. For a while, people would say, well, before the Exodus, we did this. And then after the Exodus, we did that. It was kind of the main divider 
of time. And as a young pastor, I wanted us to kind of put that in the rearview mirror and to move forward. I, I was so excited when we finally got to the point where we stopped marking time by the Exodus. And while I think it was important for us to, to move forward and move into this new season that God had for the church, as a young pastor, I had completely discounted the role or the benefit that that adverse season had brought to our church. You see, it hit me recently that if hypothetically I had come to be the pastor of Faith Church before the exodus, before that adversity and difficulty, I would have come to be the pastor of a group of people that were divided. I would have come to be the pastor of a group of people, many of whom were disgruntled, perhaps spoiling for a fight, looking for a reason to leave, and I probably wouldn't have been able to handle it. And Faith Church would have experienced even greater damage, I believe. You see, God used that adversity to prepare Faith Church for a new season. He used that time to till the ground for what he was about to do. He used that time to to create the setting, the scene, the container for this new thing he was about to accomplish. So when I arrived, I was welcomed by a committed core of people. And a few years ago on Anniversary Sunday, I I talked about our need for a new core group. And I looked back at the original core group that started our church, that built the church that we have come to be a part of. And I said that we need a new core group who will build the church our friends and neighbors will join and our children will lead. And I laid out the characteristics of, of that original core group and how they were formed and fashioned, how they were molded into this, this group of people who built the church that we get to be a part of today. And I talked about the, the different roles that discipled them and formed them, the practices, the processes, but I left out a key element. I left out adversity. You see, all of those other elements tempered with adversity, made that group of people who they were. Now, you can go through adversity and not come out on the other side of it any stronger or better off. And so adversity doesn't necessarily make strong Christians and it doesn't necessarily make strong churches. But adversity coupled with spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines, that creates strong Christians and strong churches. That group was refined by adversity. They were developed by spiritual practices and then refined by adversity. About 18 months ago, I started to face the most difficult season that I had faced as a pastor. It felt like the the relationship that we had worked so hard to build with our community that it was fraying at the edges and that because of rumors in, in town that we were losing our witness among the people here. If you go back and you listen to my message on Anniversary Sunday of 2019, you can hear that in my voice as I preached about how the passage of Scripture where Jesus refers to a woman who is laboring to bear a child, that she goes through great anguish and sorrow, but when the child is born, she forgets that pain and sorrow for the joy of her newborn baby. And I was preaching, hoping that we were coming through that season of adversity and we would be able to rejoice with the fruits of our labor, to rejoice with what was on the other side of that season of adversity. And for a brief time at the beginning of this year, we experienced an incredible season 
looking back at the photos from January, February, March of 2020, uh, it, was, it was a wonderful season. But that season was followed by yet another new season of adversity. And see, I had been expecting yet another year. Once we pushed past the adversity of 2019, I was expecting yet another year of God's blessings and growth. We had experienced 10 of the last 11 years. We'd experienced a 10% increase in attendance. And so I had the expectation that that was just going to continue again and again. I looked around and I said, God is building his church. And so I wasn't expecting 2020 to be as adverse as it has You see, the difference between our expectations and reality is the source of our discouragement. And when we expect one thing and it doesn't happen, we're discouraged. It's all about managing our expectations. Uh, Maybe you've heard the story about the young woman. She went to college and her parents were very demanding, always wanted her to get good grades. And she got to school and things weren't going well, and she called her parents and she told them everything that had led up uh, to her not getting a good grade. She said that she began to have uh, a relationship with her professor and that while she was riding on the professor's motorcycle with him to go buy drugs, that they were in an accident and she ended up in the hospital. And because she was in the hospital, she wasn't able to turn in her paper and that led to her getting a C in biology. Her parents were just dumbfounded on the other end of the phone. They didn't know what to say. And then she broke the news. I, I made all of that up. I, I'm not dating my professor. I haven't been in a motorcycle accident. I'm not in the hospital. But now that you know none of that has happened, me getting a C in biology is not that big of a deal. She was trying to show them, look, it could be a lot worse. And since it's better than that, maybe you're not as frustrated. God has been so good to us here at Faith Church that I expected things to continue heading in that direction. The truth is that God has continued to build his church. He's just been building it differently over the last 18 months. He's been doing his work, but it just hasn't looked like the work that he had done in the previous 10 years. Let me illustrate what I mean. Um, My son loves building Legos, and my daughter loves building puzzles. And there is a similarity in both activities. You're putting pieces together to build something, but a puzzle is two-dimensional. And so looking at the photo on the front of the box of the puzzle, you can begin to put the pieces together and make the picture that's there on the box. But Legos are different. You see, there's a picture on the front of a Lego box, but you can't just go grabbing the different pieces and putting them together to make them look like the picture. Because... Legos are three-dimensional, and there are pieces that have to be built that you cannot see. There are pieces that you can't see, but hold it all together. And I believe that in this season, though it hasn't been what I expected, in this season of rebuilding, that God has been working to build the pieces that are unseen, but pieces that will hold it all together. People had an expectation of Jesus as well. And when it didn't line up with the picture that they had on the front of their box of the kingdom of God, when what Jesus was doing didn't match up with what they thought the kingdom of God should look like, they got frustrated with him. And that's what's happening in our passage today, Mark chapter 2. 
Jesus has another one of these moments, that there are several of them throughout the Gospels, where he has to break down people's expectations to build something else in its place. You see, Jesus was going to build a kingdom, but it was not going to be contained in castles and borders and armies. This kingdom that Jesus was building would be far more resilient, and it would be contained not in Borders, not in castles, but in hearts and in minds, in changed lives. Look with me at Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, speaking to Jesus, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And Jesus gives them two analogies. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or a new piece of cloth on an old garment. Or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But the new wine must be put into new wineskins. The people come to Jesus, and they're confused. What they're expecting is not being lived out by Jesus and his disciples. And it's not that... What they were expecting Jesus to do was wrong because both the Pharisees and the disciples of John, both those that were the religious elite hypocrites and those who were the true followers of the way that John the Baptist were preaching, they were both doing this thing of fasting in this time. And so Jesus responds to tell them not that fasting is wrong, not that Jesus has anything against fasting, but rather Jesus isn't leading his disciples to fast right now because it's not the right season. It's not the right moment. And then he gives them two analogies of of what it's like to do the right thing in the wrong season. He says, no one takes a piece of, of new cloth or unshrunk cloth to sew to an old garment. You see, when an old garment would tear and they were going to patch it, you couldn't take a piece of new cloth, something that was brand new, and put it on the garment because as that new piece of cloth started to shrink as it was exposed to the elements, as it began to be washed and cleaned, it would shrink and would become so tight that it would pull away from the garment and it would actually tear it worse. New cloth hadn't been weathered yet. It hadn't been shrunk yet. It hadn't been broken in. And you know what it's like to have a a new shirt or a new pair of pants or a pair of new shoes. They haven't been broken in yet. They haven't shrunk yet in the first wash. And so Jesus is saying, you don't take new unshrunk cloth and sew it onto an old garment because it'll pull away. You need to use an old remnant of some old cloth to patch old cloth. And then Jesus says, you don't take new wine and put it into old wineskins. Now, the idea here is is kind of similar, though it's reversed and new and old and old and new. But the idea is the same because an old wineskin would become brittle. It would become rigid. 
And when the new wine was put in it and the new wine would begin to expand, it would begin to gain pressure as it fermented, it would cause the old wineskin to break. It was too rigid to handle the expansion of the new wine. And so new wine would be put in new wineskins because new leather wineskins, new leather pouches, hadn't yet, hadn't yet become hard and rigid. And so they would stretch as the wine expanded. Now today, people put wine in glass bottles. And if wine is put into the glass bottles too early in the process, it'll actually cause the corks to burst out. But if it's put in at the right time, a little bit of pressure will begin to build. Not too much to push the cork out, but enough that when a wine bottle is opened, it often pops. And so for these moments, for these needs, there needed to be the right element in the right season. But Jesus wasn't saying that there's anything wrong with new cloth or anything wrong with old wineskins. What he was saying is that for that particular need, it wasn't appropriate or fitting. And Jesus wasn't saying that fasting was wrong. He was saying one day the disciples will fast, but it's not appropriate to this season. One of the most difficult things uh, that we had to do um, early on in my time as lead pastor was bring Faith Christian School uh, to an end. Faith Christian School was a ministry that our church operated for decades, and it blessed many families. But the season was different when I arrived as pastor. And with our board, we looked for several different ways that we could keep it going, and it just seemed the most prudent and wise thing to do was to bring it to a close. And afterwards, I had people question if I had a problem with Christian education. And that was crazy to me because I grew up going to Christian school my entire school days. My wife had trained to be a Christian school teacher. I was going to one day put my kids in Christian school. Of course, I hadn't had any children yet. It wasn't that I had anything against Christian education. I love Christian. I'm so thankful for the difference that Christian education made in my life and my wife's life, and it's now making in the lives of my children. It just wasn't the right season for our church. It had absolutely been the right thing for us in the past and had made a huge difference. And there are people that are serving in ministry today and leading their families to follow Jesus in churches in our community and around the nation who were formed and fashioned by Faith Christian School. And I'm so thankful for its legacy. But it was a new season. And I don't know if you've noticed, but we are in a new season right now. And in this new season, I've had, to, I've had to consider, to reevaluate some of the things that we were doing here at Faith Church. And I've struggled with, were we doing wrong things? Were we headed in the wrong direction? Some of the results that we received from these things, some of the, way, the results that, that became clear during COVID-19, it wasn't what we were striving for. And I came to realize that they weren't the wrong things, just aren't right for this season. They'd be like new cloth on an old garment or new wine in old wineskins right now. And so things need to change. Now, as we went into quarantine, I thought, you know, we're probably going to come out of this pandemic and need to make some changes. Probably everyone recognized that things would be different later. And I thought we probably need a quarter turn strategy. Now, 
maybe you know this, but when wine is in a cellar and aging, every so often someone needs to go and turn the wine bottles a quarter turn. Because as the sediment in the wine settles down, it needs to land on the bottle and then the bottle is turned and so it makes it possible for more of the sediment to attach to the bottle instead of just floating in the wine. It keeps the wine clear. And I thought, when we come out of this season, we'll need to do a quarter turn. But more and more I'm recognizing that this is not a time for a quarter turn, but rather it's a time for new wineskins and new wine. Now, I wish that because it's Anniversary Sunday, I could give you this vision plan, this statement, this is what we're going to do, here's what's happening next month, but I really can't do that. Because forecasting is a poor man's game in good times, and it's a foolish man's game in the middle of a pandemic. I don't know what is around the corner, so I can't tell you what the plan is, per se. But I can tell you what our purpose is. In this season, I've been reminded of Lewis and Clark multiple times. Lewis and Clark traveled from St. Louis to the West Coast. They were traveling in uncharted territory. They were going across land that no one could foretell what they were going to face. And they thought that once they crested the top of the first mountain, that they'd be able to canoe downstream to the ocean. They'd be able to reach the far coast. But when they reached the top of that mountain, they didn't see a plain and a river running to the sea. Rather, what they saw was a range of mountains. There would be many more peaks that they would have to cross. And I don't know what lays beyond the mountains of this month and this pandemic. I don't know what terrain we'll have to traverse in the months ahead. But like Lewis and Clark, I do know the direction that we're heading. Lewis and Clark didn't know what mountains they would have to face, what terrain was ahead, but they knew that they were going to keep heading west. And throughout all of this, and in the days ahead, our direction, our purpose, our passion will not change. The terrain definitely will, but our direction will remain the same. And so while I can't give you what the plan is, per se, I can tell you where my heart is at. And I think there are three main purposes or passions that I should share with you. First, we remain committed to discipleship. I want a core of resilient disciples. If the pandemic has taught me anything, it's the need to have people who are resilient no matter what challenges may come. That's what Jesus was building here. He was building a core group of disciples. And what we see happening again and again in the Gospels is that he preaches to the crowds and he's passionate for the crowds and he heals the masses, but he walks away from them to focus on developing a core group of disciples, a mature group of people who will be able to carry the gospel to others. I mean, look at chapter 3. We read in chapter 2. In chapter 3 and in verse 7, what we see is that Jesus has such a great multitude following him that he has to get into a boat so the people don't trample over him. And later on in the chapter, verse 21, his family comes to get him because there are so many people, they think he's lost his mind. But right in the middle of all of this, in verse 14, we see that Jesus goes into a mountain alone to pray over who would be his disciples. And verse 14 says, He appointed the twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out 
preach. Jesus is not leading the disciples to fast. And it's not what people were expecting. But Jesus was starting where they were with a plan to get them where he wanted them to be. Jesus was passionate about developing this group that he would one day send out. And he was starting where they were at with a destination in mind. And that's what we are doing here. We will constantly emphasize discipleship because we believe that God has called you to go and make a difference in our community and in our world. And the second passion, the second purpose in my heart is evangelism. I feel called more than ever to reach Chandler and the surrounding community with the gospel. But my understanding of how to do that is changing drastically. During the quarantine season, during this time of doing church online, since March 26th or 22nd, 23rd, whatever the first Sunday was, I've gone back and I've compiled the statistics on the videos that we have published online. And there are 6,100 different Facebook accounts that have watched 10 minutes or more of one of these online services. 6,100. There are more people that have watched at least 10 minutes of one of these worship services than live in all of Chandler. There's only 5,000 people in Chandler. But 6,100 people from across the nation have watched at least 10 minutes of a service. It would be a huge thing to get 6,100 people to drive past our building. 6,100 people have watched 10 minutes of our service. This new season has given us an opportunity, has afforded us the opportunity to, to reach people that we never could have reached otherwise. So that's changing my thinking about how we can reach this community with the gospel. Another thing that is changing my thinking is looking at Jesus and the way that he responded to the crowds by developing a group of disciples. There's a passage that tells us that Jesus sees the crowds and is moved with compassion for them, but instead of wading into the people, rather he looks at his disciples and he says, pray that the Lord sends laborers into the harvest because the harvest truly is great. And my, my thinking on the best way for us to reach our community is changing, and it's not because I have a lack of urgency. Hear me on this. It's because I want to truly reach everyone. Uh, th think about it this way. If I got a call today that a family member of mine in Virginia was sick and I, I, I wanted to get to them, I would not immediately start running to Virginia. That would be the fastest way for me to get started heading in that direction, but that would not be the fastest way for me to arrive at my destination. And just like I would take some time to make some plans and to, to find a plane ticket, or to get a car, or whatever, we are going to take time in this rebuilding to build disciples who will get us, help us reach the destination of sharing the gospel with this community. I am more compelled than ever to reach Chandler with the gospel. And I am more convinced that the way to reach our community is to build an army 
of disciple makers. This has been a time when we have said farewell to many people who attended our church, but I would rather have an army of 70 disciple makers than a gathering of 140 fans. I believe that that is what God is doing in us in this season. The third passion that's on my heart, and it seems crazy to share this with you in this season when our attendance is less than it has been in years, is I feel that we are to play a role in church planting. Pastor Eric feels the call to plant the church. Our church was a mission church. We were planted by Free Will Baptist here to reach this community. That's been in our DNA. It's been a passion of ours. Members of our church, Brother Helms, Benny Higgs, have served on the Indiana Missions Board. We have given generously to missions. And so I feel like that God is calling us to take another step in being a part of church planting. Now, I have no idea what that looks like in timeline or location, but I know that this is not something that God has called us to do alone that our Free Will Baptist movement, our Free Will Baptist partners are passionate about planting new churches. And I just recently had an excellent conversation with the members of our state association executive committee about this burden and passion. I don't know what it looks like, but I know that if we are making disciples who make disciples, that we'll be ready to replicate that in another town or city when the day comes, whenever that day comes. That's what Jesus was doing in this moment. He was building his disciple makers. He was building his core group who would build the church, who would be the containers. He was building his remnant that would be grafted on to the torn hearts of the people. He was making a new wineskin that he could pour this new wine into. And this new wineskin would be Fill, but not just for containing the new wine, but for carrying it to others, that they may drink in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This remnant that Jesus was stitching together, it would be sewn, it would be grafted on, but it would be for the purpose of carrying the warmth and the shelter of the gospel to a new generation. And once Jesus had built this new wineskin, once he had put together this new remnant that was pregnant with purpose, he would make new wine to fill that wineskin. Jesus said in this passage that his disciples would fast one day when the bridegroom, when he was taken from them. And on the eve of Jesus being taken from the disciples, he has a final meal with them. And he tells them to drink this cup, which is the new covenant in my blood. He's telling them that he is making a new wine for them, that he himself would be crushed for the purpose of making this new wine. You know how they made wine back in biblical times. They would put all of the grapes into a large vat and they would clean their feet really well, wash their feet, get them all clean, and then they would step into the vat and stomp and trample on the grapes, crushing all of the grapes. Jesus is saying, I, my blood, my body is going to be broken and I want you to eat the bread and I want you to drink the cup to remember my sacrifice so that I can make this new covenant with you. God alludes to this in Isaiah 65 when his prophet said that he, was, he wanted to destroy Israel but he would hold on to them like a crust, cluster of grapes because within the cluster of grapes was wine. 
the people of Israel, the Jews, would be the, the source. They would be the, 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 the place where Jesus would come so that he could be crushed into new wine. In Isaiah 53 and verse 5, Isaiah tells us that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And the word bruised there, it means to, to trample on, to crush. And Jeremiah uses that same word in Lamentations 3.34 when he says that he would, God would crush all of the prisoners of the earth under his feet. You see, the new wine that is poured into us, it is the product of Jesus being trampled. It's the product of Jesus being crushed. Jesus went to the cross and was crushed for me so that new wine might be poured into this container that he has built, this church that he has called, this church that he is building. And in the crushing that he experienced, new wine was made so that my sins could be forgiven. And he would take his, my sins upon his back and would give me his righteousness in his place. And by trusting in him, I could experience righteousness, forgiveness, and reconciliation to God. I got to tell you that in the past year, it has felt like I've been walked on. It's been crushing the crushing that I have experienced is nothing in comparison with the crushing that Jesus did. The pressure that I have been under is nothing in comparison to the press that was upon Jesus so that his blood could be shed for us. And now in this crushing that I'm experiencing, God is doing a new thing. He is making me more like himself. He is crushing the idols that were in my heart. He's crushing the pride and the arrogance. He's crushing the insecurity. He's crushing these things in me. And I want you to know that in this crushing, there is new power and freedom and joy. It hasn't been easy, but it's been good. Faith Church, I want to invite you individually to step into this crushing, to step into this pressing, to step into this time because God wants to do a new work in us. And Faith Church, I want to invite you corporately to step into this crushing, step into this pressing because God is making a new wineskin that he may do a new thing with. Father, I pray for each one who watches this. Lord, may we step into the crushing and the pressing. God, do a work in us. Give us new freedom and power. Do a new thing. Prepare us for the new season. We ask this in your